1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Paul Haywood, the author and columnist, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. One of the biggest clubs in the world have sacked their manager, a club legend whose goal won them the European Cup. So much for Barcelona and Ronald Koeman. Oligana Gunnar meanwhile, limps on at Manchester United. His next public ordeal is at Spurs on Saturday evening. More and more, he seems to be a symbol of the club's failure to move with the times. The football world is changing fundamentally, isn't it, Paul? Are United in danger of being left behind?
0: Well, taking an optimistic view just for a moment, I'd say they still have a hell of a lot of good players. Uh, They've got an imbalanced squad and so on, and they're badly structured. On the pitch, they have the potential to be a strong top-four club still, but... In recent games it 's looked as if Manchester City, Chelsea, and Liverpool are in a completely different orbit, so obviously attention then veers away from the quality of the individuals in that squad towards how the club is organized, who the manager is, what the first team' setup is, and whether Manchester United actually are built to compete with those other three teams and At the moment, you would say they 're not
1: because you know, as we said I the world is changing and presumably is a bit of a symbol of that lack of a cohesive approach perhaps you know no director of football who could be expected at a club like Manchester United to have a manager of global stature underneath him following a strategy that combines the club's traditions with the realities of the game that's you know we've looked elsewhere and it's a geopolitical power tool now isn't it
2: yeah look they've tried. they've installed John Murta, haven't they as director of football Darren Fletcher as the technical director, but they're rookies in that role, aren't they? they're learning on the job, and what have they got to work with in terms of the manager there's no There's no real discernible style is there to their play. I think at times last season they were at their best on on the counter attack, but they're not constructed to just be a counter attack inside they They sort of fall between a few stools. So therefore, when they come to identifying players to take them forward, I don't think they're they're entirely sure on where to look. And there is a danger, I think, that, that United, because they've got commercial people at the helm, you know, Richard Arnold and Ed Woodward, there is that part of them where they, they just can't resist. They couldn't resist Ronaldo. They couldn't resist the opportunity to sign Jadon Sancho, one of the U- European football's hottest prospects. But the truth was that they didn't need to strengthen that position as much as others, and, and they ignored the gaping hole in central midfield. And and that has definitely come back to haunt them in recent weeks. So the policy is all over the place, but I do think it ultimately stems from the top. They've employed, you know, two good people, two younger guys that are making their way, but are they equipped to run Manchester United in its current predicament? I'm not, not so sure. Mm. Paul, you know, you've worked very closely with Sir Alex Ferguson.
1: Where do you feel he fits into this equation? I find it interesting that one of the theories about Frank Lampard's failure at Chelsea was that he ignored the benefit of a, a so-called grey beard alongside him, someone with real experience. <laughs> Does Solskjaer need someone around him of that, perhaps of greater stature, with the greatest respect than, than McFelan?
0: Yeah, I see an awful lot of rubbish on social media, Mike, about Sir Alex Ferguson pulling the strings and so on in the background and, you know, driving into the training ground to sort things out. It's really not like that at all. The club made the decision when he retired or specifically Ed Woodward made the decision when he retired to to move on from it and to have Sir Alex Ferguson there as a essentially a consultant, and advisor, but an, an honorary figure. He's not intimately involved in the business and footballing dealings of the club, but he's there. So there's a misconception among supporters that Ferguson is somehow uh, part of this equation. He's not to any great degree. And one of the things that interests me is the hesitancy around the Solskjaer dilemma. And I think it's quite easy to explain. When Jose Mourinho and Louis van Gaal blew tens, arguably hundreds of millions of pounds in the transfer market, I think it scarred Ed Woodward and the the money men at United and they set up this new system to stop that happening again and to give them more influence and control over first team affairs and specifically transfers. So what you had was Ed Woodward moving his tanks in really into the first team operation and as Adrian said, John Mertz is the football director, Matt Judge is head of transfers, Darren Fletcher is there as technical director, you've got Ed Woodward Overseeing the whole thing with Richard Arnold, his successor or his ex- expected successor, very influential as well. And as Ferguson always said about managers, you know, the only way you get power and control is with success and experience. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer doesn't have the success and he doesn't have the experience. Therefore, he doesn't have the power and the control. And what that means is that Manchester United's first team setup starts to look like a committee system, if you like, with Solskjaer the head coach, but without real control and I think they're reluctant to move him on because they know that if they go back to hiring a big name, powerful manager, they're going to have to cede some of their own power and that they'll go back to having, you know, a manager who calls the shots. And I, I don't think they want that.
2: Yeah. On, on um, your original question, Mike, in regards to does he need a sort of older assistant? He, he's managed 438 matches at first team level in England and Norway. He's the same age as, as Thomas Tuchel. He's, you know, he's approaching 50. He shouldn't need one, really, should he? I think it's more a case of, is Oli Gunnar Solskjaer a good enough manager for Manchester United? I think he's a wonderful caretaker of the dressing room. He seems to be able to... You know, he has made it a happier place. He deals with the big egos, the huge names very well. And and I think on that side of it, he's excellent. It's just when you compare him to Tuchel, Pep, Klopp as a tactician, as an improver of players... Then he's just not in the same stratosphere, and and unfortunately the players know that as well. The players will will recognise that they'll be looking at at the way that Liverpool ran rings around them, at the way City are about to, <laughs> <laughs> the way that Chelsea probably will when they meet them. It's they'll look at that and say this is a team, this is a manager that will improve me, that will bring me the medals that I crave in my career. And I think what we're getting to now at the stage at Manchester United is there are doubts creeping in. They they all like him. They love him, but there is now an issue where they maybe don't trust him to help their careers. And ultimately, footballers are individuals playing within that team framework. But but they're all looking after their own ten, fifteen year career if they're lucky. Mm. But you know, as a
1: former player, your perspective, Adrian. You know, you've been around dressing rooms when you see players views or alleged players' views being briefed and dressing room inquests being disseminated, have we gone beyond
2: the point of no return? I think, as Paul said, results will always dictate and if he can somehow turn it around and bring short-term success, then things will will move on. And, and this period might be forgotten for a few more months. So I think everything can always be turned around in football because things change so quickly. But but yeah, I have been in dressing rooms where that has happened. It's re- incredibly unhealthy. And what it does, it creates a divide inside the, the dressing room as well because the, that trust and unity, the siege mentality that all managers like to sort of set up, It's broken, isn't it? And and if quotes from one player come out or or there are suspicions that this player said that and this player said that and it's got out there, then you can have factions within the group, you know, those that are against the manager, those that are for him. And yeah, in those situations, it usually only ends in in one way, sadly. Mm. What
1: about strength of management, Paul? It's something that you could never accuse Sir Alex of being unafraid of the biggest decisions and the biggest players. Do United need a manager who perhaps, under the right circumstances, would be prepared to drop Ronaldo? And if that's the case, would he be allowed to do so, given the commercial connotations of that?
0: Yeah, my alarm bells started ringing about Ronaldo, I think, in in his second game there, when um, people started saying, well, you can never take Ronaldo off in a game, you know, and then it quickly became you must never leave Ronaldo out of a game. And... um, My worry when he signed was that the whole thing would become about him and that the pattern of play would all revolve around him. The whole team would suddenly start functioning to get the ball to him in the penalty area where he's now a kind of penalty box predator rather than a kind of free-flowing attacker as he was in his first incarnation at Man United. So immediately you knew that there was going to be potentially a problem when things got difficult when Ronaldo had to be treated like any other player. It was, I think, as Adrian said, primarily a a sort of showbiz commercial signing. It also gave them a a number nine, which they wanted, fair play. But I don't think it helped Solskjaer in any way to have that complication when things weren't going well. I mean, overall, he could avoid those sorts of complications by structuring the team and managing games. I mean, the fact that they played that way against Atalanta in midweek in the Champions League and were 2-0 down and had to kind of rescue themselves, should have been the warning sign, but then they went out against Liverpool and seemed to want to play exactly the same way and take the same risks and play in that very unstructured, open way. And this time, there was no coming back from it, and they got a hiding. So the mismanagement of those two games, tactically and structurally, to me, would be the, the biggest indictment of Solskjaer's uh, management, game management.
1: In those circumstances, Aide, what, what responsibility do the players bear You know, you look at Paul Pogba, who insists he didn't snub Solskjaer. Is he still a disruptive figure? And therefore, if that's the case, should he
2: be quietly, well, he wouldn't be quiet, but be ushered out of the door in January? Do you know what? I'm going to defend Paul Pogba in a way. I think a lot of the disruption around him comes from his agent and not from him himself. I don't think he's a bad person. What he does on the pitch that is disruptive is the ill discipline and obviously we saw that at the weekend and it's not been the first time I mean, he's cost them a lot of goals by switching off defensively and by losing his head he's given away penalties by making poor decisions now is that down to him of course it is but managers and coaching staff have to set up an environment whereby there's personal responsibility and if people make mistakes like that more than once then there are repercussions and they are removed from the team and they they're not part of it until they can have that manager's trust. Now, I think at Manchester United, from the outside looking in, it looks like the standards have dipped and, and maybe they've not been on top of the discipline within the team, i.e. when they defend absolutely appallingly at Leicester. Of course, it's down to the structure and the organisation, but make sure the next game is the complete opposite. And and I don't think that that that, that message has been conveyed. I think that Oli Gunnar Solskjaer and his coaching staff have let standards slip. Bad habits have set in. And when you've got a manager that's kind of likeable, but a little bit soft and not scary, not someone that you're worried about, he's going to drop me for disciplinary reasons, for giving a penalty away, he won't drop me, he's too nice a guy. When you've got that situation, players make mistakes and they continue to do those things.
0: The could just come in on um, Pogba. He's tried to leave or sounded like he wanted to leave a couple of times, at least a couple of times in the past. And at the best moment to sell him contractually, when they could have made the most money from selling him, Manchester United decided to play hardball in the market and they priced him very, very high. And that was a kind of political act. It was to say to the big European clubs, we're not a soft touch. We have spent a lot of money, but we're not going to get pushed around if you want Pogba. You're going to have to pay the going rate for him or our going rate Nobody paid, so he stayed. And so you've had this perennial, perennial issue of Pogba's future hanging over the first team for years and years and years. And that's an example of bad thinking because United in the past would have said, OK, this guy wants to leave. Fair enough. It's better not to have him in the camp. Let's get him out. Let's, let's get somebody else and, and not have this constant distraction. But because they mismanaged the business side of it when they had the opportunity to sell him, he's still there and they're still talking
2: about it. And there's still no place for him in the team really, is there? He's not trusted to be part of a midfield two against the better teams. Against the, the weaker teams that they'll risk it and he, he might run the show. But they as we saw at the weekend, they won't start with him there, which means they crowbar him into a wide midfield position, which completely unbalances the team, and it takes a a Sancho out of the team or it takes a Rashford or a Greenwood out, doesn't it? It's it is a mess. They would be better off, I think, moving him on, but not solely. Because of disruptive reasons. I think I think it just when you've got Bruno Fernandez and he's the ten, there's no real place for Pogba unless it's against the Minos. Mm, there's been an inevitable outbreak of conventional wisdom being spouted,
1: isn't there? You know, three games to save his job and all that sort of stuff. We know that that such artificial timeframes really, rarely work. Can any of us see Solciar surviving the next international break? Because if you look at it, Personally, I can't see them winning any of the three games coming up, even though Spurs are struggling. They've got Atalanta and then the Manchester derby. What about you, Paul?
0: Well, I can hear Roy Keane's voice in my head about, you know, when he talks about (laughs) Manchester United managers getting thrown under the bus by players, and if they are unhappy with Solskjaer and they did confront him, I don't know that they did, but I keep reading that they did, it doesn't take much from that position to undermine him to the point where his position becomes untenable will those players try to save him against spurs at and manchester city it's a very big question and even if they do try are the team in the current state they're in actually capable of getting results from those three games i think the three games thing is a, is a classic shorthand for uh the club is trying to decide what to do and they're trying to decide who they could get if they did fire him but um you know, we shouldn't forget that in the first two seasons, he did an extremely good job of, of stabilising the first team and restoring the kind of spirit and identity um, to the first team without really giving them a particularly clear direction. But the events of the last few weeks, uh, you know, suggest that um, uh, if they want to get anywhere near City, Liverpool and Chelsea, they're going to have to get a, um, a top-level manager
1: in to do that. Who, who If you're making the decision, Aid, who would you bring in?
2: <laughs> oh, now you put me on the spot. <laughs> By the way, I, 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 look, I've I do think the time is up. But he's, and despite all of the criticism and the warranted criticism, they, they've only just lost their first away game in twenty nine. <laughs> Like, do you know what yeah. I mean? That, that is the great sort of conflict here, isn't it? And but but I think talent has got them over the line in a lot of those games, and that can only keep getting you out of jail for so often. I think the two standout candidates to knock the team together, to have the personality, the character, the mental fortitude to handle the job, will be will be Conte or Zidane. Um, Zidane is a proven winner, obviously at Real Madrid. Didn't always cover himself in glory tactically, but. I do remember some really shrewd calls from him as well over the years. And I just think they've got the gravitas to handle the job. Um, but it's quite the departure, isn't it? Because they love it. Manchester United fans love having one of their own at the wheel, as they love to say. Or they certainly loved to say before they ended up getting stuck in gear um, <laughs> and, and heading towards reverse. But but yeah, it's... Um, I think it's quite a departure to get rid of a club legend and they don't really want to do it. But if they want to compete with teams run by Tuchel, Pep and Klopp, I think they'll need a Conte or a Zidane myself. What about the general standard of
1: elite management, Paul? When you look around, you're basically looking for people who, who are out of work or are doing you know exceptional things at either emerging clubs or feeder clubs, whatever you want to call them. Adrian talked about two men there. Conte and Zidane who are available Eric Ten Hag has got his supporters and I can see the the bigger picture there of bringing someone in perhaps along with Overmars as a director of football to develop a new strategy in terms of overall management skills are we in a blip
0: uh we know there's a merry-go-round and the merry-go-round has been joined in recent years by kind of um young, genius uh, German coaches who were sort of very much taking control of the profession. I mean, in in the Manchester United context, you come back to the the people making the decisions and the appointments because they've tried quite a few things now. They've tried, um, you know, obviously David Moyes, who was meant to be a a prototype Ferguson uh, and stepped up from Everton. Then they went back to old disciplinarian European kind of um, Dutch technician, Van Gaal. Then they thought, no, we just need to win some trophies. So they lurched into the Mourinho. Bit of a myth these days, but um, that was a disaster and I think they were scarred by that. And then... They went looking for identity with Solskjaer and, and let's roll back the years and, and get somebody we know and trust and who understands the club and who can develop us with this with this long-term plan. So, yeah, where do you go there? What do you do then? Do you grab hold of the menu of kind of elite names and say, well, one of these guys has got to be good? Um, <laughs> you know, is is, is is it a question? What, what, what do they want the next manager to do? Do they just want them to be a winner? Do they want them to be a long-term thinker? Do they want them to be, uh, you know, a real... A, a, gifted technical coach, a kind of uh, a Tuchel figure. They've really given themselves a dilemma there as to which direction they now want to go in. They'll probably go short-term and there is a temptation to go short-term. There's a handful of people who you know when you bring them in they will have an effect and Conte is certainly one of those.
1: Yeah, because I suppose you've only got to look at Spurs Saturday evening's opponent's aid to see the cost of, of falling behind you know there's a club struggling to live up to pretensions managerial uncertainty you've got players who someone like Harry Winks or Deli alley they need to probably leave to revive their careers it's a mess there isn't it it's
2: not great no it really isn't and I think where they are in the division kind of flatters them really based on performance levels just looking at some of the data and there's only Norwich City that have created less in open play than, than Tottenham Hotspur this season. They are not sustaining attacks. They are not dangerous in open play, which is a, a, a big worry. Big reliance on Son and, and on down the left. They're not a brilliant counter-attacking team anymore. Nuno's trying to move away from that, trying to get a little bit more control. I think there are three teams with fewer... Direct attacks this season than Spurs, and that was their thing, wasn't it? Last season, go from back to front in a flash to score goals. So they're sort of caught between two stools at the moment tactically. Maybe they made a mistake not going for Potter when they had the opportunity. I think Potter would have been a better bet, maybe than Nuno, but that is easy to say in hindsight. And, and as for those two players, Ali and Winks, yeah, I think I think they probably do need they need a new challenge, don't they? Um, Delhi Ali just hasn't unfortunately matured as a player or or a person. Yeah, he's he's still I still see him as quite immature and I mean Paul will have seen this down the years with various players I'm sure. It can also soften you up fame and fortune. I look when I look at Deli Alley, I look at a young kid who was who came from MK Dons. He was a fighter, a scrapper, he was so hungry to score goals, make a difference, and he carried that into his early time at Spurs and now I just don't see that fire in his belly anymore. And it's quite sad to see actually. Um, he needs a manager that will bring that back, I think.
1: Mm.
2: Adrian mentioned uh, Graham Potter there Paul. There's
1: a sense of you know of a club at Brighton, Brighton are at at, Brighton, Brighton at, at uh, Anfield at the weekend. I've always felt there's a sense of a club at ease in its own skin there, but let's call it the Potter factory if you like. <laughs> Any sense that you have because obviously, you know, it's a club that's close to you geographically at least that his heads might be turned by this increasing speculation about his suitability for the biggest jobs?
0: Well, Brian Hover is building a very big barricade, I can tell you, to stop people coming for uh, Graham Potter because it it just gets uh, better and better with him. If you were looking for um, the next bright, gifted English coach, you would certainly be thinking of Graham Potter. But from his perspective, he's at a very important part in his career. First Premier League job... He has to, if he does make a move at any point, he's got to make the right move because you have to remember that he's the club he's working for is very well set up to help him do the kind of job he does. It's the same with any football club. When you've got the right people in the right positions, uh, you know, that's a recipe for success. In this case, you've got Paul Barber, chief executive, Tony Bloom, the owner, Graham Potter, the manager, and Dan Ashworth, you know, running the development and academy side. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. And Graham Potter is a superb progressive coach. He's got great judge of a player. His game management skills are improving all the time. But he has this support structure behind him at a club that wants to progress. And I think any manager would only really walk away from that for a very good reason. I certainly wouldn't do it to go to Newcastle if I were him because nobody knows how that's <laughs> going to turn out. And, um, and would he... I've got a suspicion. Yeah, and, and equally, would he jump into a job like Spurs where if they finish sixth, everybody would be moaning about them, but we're in, uh, moaning at the club, but where in fact sixth is probably where they belong, you know, sixth or seventh in the table. So where's the career progression at the moment in going to a club like Spurs when you can stay at Brighton, um, establish your reputation, develop a team, take it up and up and up and, and really enjoy a kind of constructive, peaceful life?
1: They're at Liverpool, as I mentioned, uh, Adrian. Is it fair, do you think, to say that they make more of what they've got than their natural rivals, which, you know, at the moment are
2: Chelsea and City? Possibly. I mean, they certainly did in their title-winning season, and and right now they're, they're on fire, aren't they? It's glorious to watch. It, look, they're a very well-coached team, aren't they? And they've got a completely clear identity, and, yeah, that helps... Good players look very good players. It helps, you know, very good players look great players when you're working within that structure, working for a coach that really knows what he's doing. A little bit like Brighton though. I think with Brighton, I absolutely agree with everything that that Paul said on the structure. That is a dream for a gaffer. The one missing thing is that he misses out on too many good players that would want to work with him because Brighton don't want to pay crazy money. They don't want to pay the big wages really, which I, I get. But it means there's a ceiling, I think, for Potter there. And you could probably maybe say the same for Liverpool. They've, they've really sort of battened down the hatches, haven't they? And, and decided they're not going to enter the Galactico market. And, and do you know what? I thought that was a mistake. I thought that that front three needed a reboot. You know, one of the famous three moving on. You know, maybe a Mane or a Firmino. But they've proved me wrong. Wow. I mean, I think that Klopp and his coaching staff deserve a huge amount of praise for the way they've dragged the team back up to the heights that they'd hit before. Because at times last season, that attack and their manager looked broken. And we've just seen them absolutely annihilate Manchester United. Their comeback is unbelievable. Mm. You've got Chelsea. You mentioned
1: Newcastle, Paul, who probably, let's be honest, will lower the tone of it at at St James's Park <laughs> on Saturday. With Newcastle, how long do you think it will take for reality to kick in? You know, they're still under interim management. Uh, Lucien Favre is apparently the new managerial favourite. When will reality bite there? I think it's already bitten,
0: Mike. It's a bit like uh, with Neil and I, you know, when they go on holiday by accident. um, the New, Newcastle, <laughs> the Saudis have almost bought Newcastle by accident because it's quite it's quite clear that it all happened quite quickly. They didn't really have a long term plan. Uh, if they did, they would have they would have had a, a a new manager by now. The transfer speculation around the club is fantastically random and unstructured, and agent driven. You know, when I saw that the first player they were being linked with was James Tarkovsky, no disrespect to James Tarkovsky, he's a very fine player but you knew then that it was going to be very much a kind of day-by-day um, day approach. And so I think any Newcastle fan will be looking at what's happened so far and say, it would be thinking, right, these people who've moved into the club are inexperienced, it's new to them, uh, they're trying to get a handle on it, they've probably got agents in, in their ears the whole time. And from where the team is in the table to where they need to go is a hell of a long way. And you only need to think about how long it took uh, Manchester City to get to their dominant position and how much money it took. I mean, the Saudis, to get, to get Newcastle into the top four and to revamp the training ground and the stadium, you know, that's a billion pounds. It was a billion pounds to Abramovich at Chelsea and it was a billion pounds, you know, more or less to uh, Manchester City's owners. So uh, Newcastle fans, I think, better be patient.
1: Yeah, talking of patience, Arsenal are at Leicester in the BT Sport Saturday lunchtime game, Adrian. What's the mood like after making
2: uh, the League Cup quarter-finals? Yeah, I'll be at the game, looking forward to it. I think, it's, I think it will. this game actually will give us more, more of an indication of where Arsenal are at. You've still got to remember they've only scored one goal away from home, Arsenal, this season at, at Burnley, and that was a direct free kick from Odegaard. So... So I think, so let's wait and see where they are. But the mood is better, much better. I mean, the performance against Aston Villa was outstanding. That was tremendous. That was exactly what Arsenal fans want to see from the team moving forward. I don't know if Mikel Arteta stumbled across the, the shape change because Erdegaard was a little bit off form or whether this was you know part of the plan. But to go to four four two was it worked like a dream. And Lacazette and Aubameyang, Excellent together, got different skill sets. So I think they, they absolutely can dovetail. Partey and Conga in central midfield. There was none of this. Everything was simplified in the game against Villa. We've seen Arsenal's midfielders often slide across to full-backs, so the full-backs move forward and it leaves the midfield a little bit empty. There was none of that in this game. It was the two central midfielders, you stay put. The wingers, Smith-Rowe and Saka, tuck in when we don't have the ball and when we get it, break at pace. And everything came together; it really did, and and that I think is the blueprint for the team moving forward. And and yeah, I I just think a lot of there are a lot of pluses. The goalie Ramsdale looks like he belongs, really confident. His distribution is, is much better than I thought it was. Um, new new centre back partnership, White and Gabrielle. There, yeah, lots of reasons to be optimistic. But Arsenal have got to turn this six game unbeaten run into a. 10 or 12 game unbeaten run to convince everybody I think because they've had two great games Villa and Spurs the rest of it has not been at the same level so it's finding that standard which we've seen and maintaining it almost every time you play we'll only find out over the coming months Yeah, Leeds, Paul
1: were beaten at the Emirates in in the Cup they're next at Norwich on Sunday and will travel there with people murmuring about second season syndrome Marcello Bielsa much loved for his quirkiness, intelligence, humility, passion. Can he sustain his impact?
0: Well, you know, you hope that Leeds aren't going to be a kind of luxury Sheffield United and it um, will mm-hmm. just get a sort of almighty, um, you know, custard pie in the face after doing incredibly well on their return to the Premier League. I think there's a lot more to Leeds than there was to Sheffield United with respect to them and Chris Wilder. The question, which wasn't difficult to spot last season, was that, you know, whether the Leeds players and the squad and the budget could sustain the style of play, the physical workload that's placed on the players, whether physical and mental burnout would kick in at some point. Uh, Obviously, the summer was crucial in terms of strengthening the squad and, and upgrading in one or two areas. They tried to do that. They've had some injuries. But the question really does remain, can a team play like that week in, week out, season after season in the Premier League and progress, or as we're perhaps seeing now after the first season of everybody finding it a great uh, novelty, you know, does a bit of reality set in and does the manager need to readjust a little bit? It will be interesting to see if Bielsa does adjust. If things don't go well, will he just will he compromise here and there? Will he change his style? Will he will he change his approach, or will he say no? If I'm going to go to hell, I'll go to hell on this on this wagon.
2: Yeah, I agree. It was. I thought it was a very worrying performance in the League Cup against Arsenal. It, I just think that when you play that style of football, the Bielsa ball you have to be a disciple of the manager you have to buy into every facet of what he's doing what he's looking to achieve and there's absolutely no question that they did for the you know the promotion season and for the first season in the Premier League everyone loved it but they look tired of it that's the bottom line they just look a bit tired of it and if and when you're trying to replicate the same things but you're down one percent, three percent, five percent, the results then get affected we've seen that this season and when the results get affected then the belief in the manager's philosophy can wane obviously we know that and I just got the feeling the other night that they didn't believe in it as much as they did previously that they, they were nowhere near as hard to play against and they've got to a little bit like we said with Liverpool they've got to recharge the batteries and go again haven't they and and that's the big challenge I think for for Bielsa in the coming weeks is Ellen Road no country for old men paul I, i'm I'm thinking here. I read a piece on
1: the goal site on Joe Gelhart, who does seem to be a an example of really good recruitment only one point six million from Wigan Liverpool lad only nineteen I feel okay we can put to one side these premature comparisons with rain Wayne Rooney, but it's quite interesting you know he's talked about. Because of Bielsa's training methods, he's running an extra two kilometres a game, he's lost eight kilos, and he's a prototype young foot soldier for someone like Bielsa. Do you need a young team in that environment?
0: Yeah, a young team or a very fit old team, that's for sure. I mean, I looked looked at some of his Joe Gellhart's clips um, last night and I I do like a striker who kind of caresses or crafts the ball into the net, but I also like one who who gives the ball um, no option, really. Uh, And, you know, when you think about Rooney and you think about Haaland in Dortmund, the strikers who finish with that tremendous aggression... And physical determination, I like that. I like to see that and I like his style. You know, he's a, he's a very sort of pugnacious player with uh, lots of potential. As Adrian says, if the players he has do get jaded uh, with that style of play, he's going to have to keep refreshing uh, the first team and the first team squad. But that's not easy, is it? If you have to keep replacing five and six players because the others are burnt out every, every six months, then that, that makes a huge demand on the recruitment department and indeed the academy system.
1: Mm. This has been the the League Cup week, Adrian. It does seem to have highlighted its you know, relative insignificance. You know, Liverpool, for instance, made eleven changes, but there was one sign of the impending ap- apocalypse. Manchester City lost the League Cup tie against West Ham. That victory on penalties will certainly add to that sense of belief, uh, which has been nurtured
2: by uh, David Moyes won't it? Oh not half yeah brilliant results sensational because City's starting 11 was very strong I know they had young Palmer up top but but the rest of the team was was, was A grade you know it was probably stronger than, than West Ham United so yeah look credit David Moyes lots of us were completely wrong about him I certainly hold my hands up I, I thought he was done as a top flight manager but he's been sensational he's built a brilliant team at West Ham and They're getting better and better, aren't they? And they're deservedly inside the top four. They're deservedly feeling that they can compete against the likes of City. Even though, you know, they know they'll probably be outshot in those games. They've got that organisation, discipline and belief that they can mix it at that level. And in Declan Rice, they've got a player that is the best central midfielder in the Premier League, in my opinion. I just think he has taken his game to a new level this season. Declan Rice, he is the player Manchester United should have bought but for now he's the player that is driving West Ham United towards another tilt at the top 4 and personally I wouldn't have any grumblings if they were to make it because I just there's what's not to like about it I can't I can't see too many flaws in in what Moyes and his players are doing right now it's great they are at Aston Villa on Sunday
1: and Villa obviously need to stabilize pretty rapidly do you think West Ham are capable of staying the course and qualifying for the Champions League, Paul? I'd like to think so
0: because you need that. You need, you know, a club like West Ham. We saw it obviously with Leicester winning the league a few years ago. But we, there has to be upward mobility in the Premier League, and it has to be possible for a manager like David Moyes to to reach that uh, level of attainment. I I completely agree about uh, Declan Rice. I, I think he is a, a tremendous player, and and let's not forget that with with Moyes. Uh, when he went in there, I bet you a lot of those West Ham players thought, "Okay, here we go. We're just on another stopgap cycle here. This will last eighteen months, and then he'll be gone, and somebody else will come in." So when you start out with that probable scepticism, it's not easy to get the uh, dressing room doing what you want it to do. And and he's done that magnificently by giving them a you know an identity, a character, a, a style of plays, improved individual players. And as I said, to go from the level of expectation that he came in with to where he is now is a tremendous achievement.
2: Very quickly on that, I just the only thing I would add is aggression. When his Everton teams were on it, they were so aggressive, weren't they? With and without the ball. Everything they did was purposeful. You know, when he first went back to West Ham, I felt like it was damage limitation in some of the matches. They were just setting up with quite a defeatist attitude. But he's flipped it around. And by being more aggressive... More purposeful, taking the fight to other teams, it's worked. And 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 yeah, the comparison with Leicester that Paul brought in is, is not outlandish. Like I, I know he wasn't saying that that they're going to follow suit and win the league, but there are similarities in yet yeah, the style of the team.
1: Yeah. Just for, for the next couple of minutes, just want to take us on a little journey into a parallel universe, Paul. We're talking about the redemption of David Moyes. What if in that parallel universe he'd been given more time at Manchester United?
0: Yeah, it remains a a good and interesting question. You have to kind of consider it in the context of the mistake, the fundamental mistake uh, I think Moyes made when he went there was in the phrase of one of the players he tried to Evertonise Manchester United. He tried to impose his system and his way of working on a team of Champions League players when he hadn't been working with Champions League players and they they had a different way of doing things and he tried to change too much too quickly in the view of several players you know according to their autobiographies and newspaper interviews so in a sense he kind of he doomed himself by making that mistake and of course so we never got a chance to find out and he never got a chance to correct that early kind of mistake that he made I think and it was it was probably one of those situations where you just, it's an impossible, they were just impossible shoes to step in and whoever did it uh, was probably going to suffer. And he continued to slide, his career continued to slide after that, but he's, he's recovered it and it just shows you that often managers who are cast aside because they're assumed to have had, you know, two or three failures on their on their card, actually they can come back from it. So he's a, he's a kind of lesson to all managers in many ways.
1: Mm, yeah, to follow on that theme, Aid. Um, what would have happened if Manchester United had successfully pursued Maurizio Pochettino after the uh, failure
2: of the Mourinho experiment? Yeah, interesting point. I think that they would have a better team now. I think that Pochettino is every bit as amiable and able to get the modern player onside and united, so to speak. So I think he's... He he would be the equal of Ole in that department. And in my opinion, he's a significantly more intelligent, smarter football coach. I think his his in-game management is excellent. And yeah, I think Manchester United would be ahead of where they are now had they pursued Pochettino. But would they be at the level that we saw from Liverpool at the weekend or Chelsea or Manchester City? Do you know what? I still don't think they would be because of that structure behind the scenes, because of the there's not a clear idea of, of where they want to go and also because I'm, I'm still not 100% sold that Pochettino is part of that elite elite group of head coaches I think he's very good better than Solskjaer but I don't I certainly wouldn't put him on a par with the three guys that that are sort of blazing a trail here in the Premier League this season I think they are they are way ahead of him. Mm.
1: We began by talking about United's current club structure Paul is Mourinho a bit like that club structure, a relic of the past?
0: Well, Mourinho's, um, you know, coaching ability, I'm assuming, is still intact. His, his CV is still glittering. But what's curious about him now is, is his willingness to walk into jobs and walk into clubs and just pull the ceiling down. Uh, as, <laughs> as soon as he started laying into the um, Roma team that lost the other night, and by implication making... You know, disparaging comments about some of the backup players. You just ask yourself: in what field of business or management or anything else would that be conducive to success? Why? Why is he? Why has he slipped into this pattern, this negative, destructive pattern, uh, which was apparent at Spurs and was certainly apparent at Manchester United? And he appears to be taking to Rome. It's almost a kind of nihilistic approach to management.
2: It's frustration, isn't it? I think at his inability to manage younger footballers like he did in the past. I just think he gets frustrated at the attitude and and how footballers are different now from when he first came in. And and I think they he unfortunately hasn't brought that extra string to his bow and and he's let frustration get the better of him.
1: Mm. Finally, you know there's been an overwhelmingly positive uh, response to the Australian player Josh Cavallio uh, coming out. I just like us to look at ourselves a little bit here. Guys, what responsibility does the media have in ensuring that when something similar happens in the English game, which inevitably it will, and probably quite soon, it will be without the prurience and the sensationalism that, that we probably understandably fear? Paul, what do you think?
0: Yeah, it, 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 it is shocking that this is such a rare event and it tells you a lot that players don't feel confident uh, talking publicly about their sexuality in world football, and they clearly don't in British uh, football, because if they did, we'd have more examples to to point to. Uh, where does the responsibility lay for uh, creating an environment where people feel um, safe and comfortable discussing their sexuality openly? Certainly rests with us in the media. It definitely rests with people in football stadiums because... You can quite see why a player wouldn't want to walk out on a pitch and be you know, harangued and abused and mocked uh, for 90 minutes. Are we, we're probably making progress in some areas, but are we at a point in a society where uh, a footballer could feel confident that that wouldn't happen? I wouldn't say we are. If, if, if black players can't step onto the football pitch without knowing they're not going to be racially abused, I can see why um, people are not confident that their sexuality will be treated with respect and dignity.
2: And within dressing rooms, Aid, it's not an issue, is it? I don't think so. I really don't. No, I think that the, the players would, would embrace that person and you know make them feel at ease. It's what being a team is all about. Um, it doesn't change anything, in my opinion. I thought that Adelaide United handled it really sensitively. I thought I thought that their announcement video was was really well done and. You know, there's a responsibility there with the club when it when it does happen here that the club works with their own player and players to to make sure that that this is done properly. And I think, honestly, I think that the majority will, you know, almost, almost rejoice at the news. You know, finally, we've got we're, we've broken that seal and and everyone can be themselves again. We, we all want everybody to be themselves and who they are, not be, you know, not have to hide it. But unfortunately, Paul is right. There, there will always be a minority that taint things. And yeah, we don't live in a perfect world. That player will will receive abuse or those players will receive abuse down down the line. We just gotta hope that as a society we we condemn it and yeah, vilify those people so that we can move on. But but yeah, in dressing rooms, nah, not an issue at all. And uh, yeah, I can't wait for the day to come in English football. The problem is, you know, players are worried about admitting whether they've had a vaccination or not. So to come out with something, you know that that they might have been keeping to themselves privately for a long, long time, is quite the step. But but I hope it happens. It was
0: intriguing um, to see, intriguing. I use that word advisedly. To Newcastle United tweeting in support of of Josh Cavallo. Now, obviously, Newcastle's new. Owners of the Saudi state and in Saudi Arabia, homosexuality is um, effectively illegal. And that just kind of illustrates the moral bind that Newcastle United have got themselves in. On the one hand, they're, they're tweeting support uh, for Josh Cavalli, and On the other hand, um, if he were to uh, go to Saudi Arabia and live his normal life, he'd be in trouble quite quickly. And, and so it's a little illustration that the Newcastle United takeover, The complexities of that certainly aren't done and dusted.
1: Yes, I fully agree with that. But also, I look forward to the day when when such announcements are no longer necessary. I think it's heartening that the support has been unanimous from coaches, clubs, fellow players, and that's a signpost to normalisation. It had a personal resonance because Josh expressed so many of the emotions and captured so many of the issues that I experienced in working with... Uh, the former Wales and British Lions captain, Gareth Thomas, on his book, Proud. A couple of the lines rang especially true. Josh said, as a gay footballer, I know there are other players living in silence. I want to help change this to show that everyone is welcome in the game of football. Now, for me, that says it all. And I hope you think that too. In the meantime, thanks to Adrian and Paul for their insight and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast.